And so we're going to be going from Matthew chapter 16. Um, I didn't bring them with me, but if you have interest, we're going to bring them next week. I was at Caesarea Philippi one day, uh, one of the tours that I take there. And uh, I always take a moment to reflect and pray. And the people go off and take pictures, and I'm by myself after I've done all my explanations and so forth. And, uh, and something came to me about doing a particular thing, and I wrote a book called The Jesus Who Never Lived. The subtitle is Exposing False Christs and Finding the Real Jesus. There are all sorts of views, as you're going to see, about Jesus. But the important thing is that we get the biblical view. And uh, where do we find that? We find it uh, at least partly in the Gospels and, of course, in the Epistles also. I haven't used this also, so I hope I'm going to do this right. Is that right? Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, it's important, and tonight, today we're going to talk about the importance of knowing the real Jesus. Now, this is not a problem just in the cults or other world religions and so forth. It's a problem sometimes in the church. And when the church has not been taught very much about what the Bible teaches of all these various issues of doctrine, they're sort of roaming around through the passages, never putting things together. And so that's part of what we're going to do today. Um, so we're going to take part one of knowing the real Jesus, first of all. And I'll have those books with me next week if you want to buy them for half price. I'll have some available. And maybe even bring a book from a friend of mine. Uh, ever heard of uh, a man named Walt Kaiser? He was very well known in the evangelical community. He just told me he just turned 90, and he's still going strong. And uh, so he wrote a book called The Jesus I Know, and where he deals with the messianic things throughout the Old Testament to the New. And that's a fast, I may bring a few of those too. So if you want them, you can pick them up next week for a small cost, and uh, otherwise uh, I'll not bother you about it, okay? Now, let's take off here the importance of knowing the real Jesus. The focal passage is this passage out of Matthew 16. So if you can't read that, you may want to read your own Bible. But this is important because this also happened, this statement I told you about Caesarea Philippi, which is a great site. But uh, the fact is, this happened in that area where there was a shrine to a god by the name of Pan. You may not know Pan, the pan had little goat legs and he ran around playing a flute. You ever seen that? Okay, that's pan. And the place is called Pontius after that. The Arabs call it Bonius because they can't say peas. So they go bees with it, Bonius, but it's Pontius. Also called Caesarea Philippi after uh, Caesar and also uh, King Philip. So... Uh, you have a very important shrine there, and I didn't bring pictures for you today because our time is limited. But um, Jesus came to that area, and it set the stage for something very important to say. Sometimes it's important. Some things just don't fit in the right setting. You know, you need a certain setting to say certain things. For example, if you're going to uh, probably uh, going to uh, ask someone to marry you. You always try to find the proper setting. You don't do it skiing, swimming. You know, you don't do it out playing basketball. You know, you try to find a setting. Does that make sense? And so that's true in the Bible. There are settings. Elijah in 1 Kings 18 has a setting. 
that's extremely important to understand what's going on. And so this is a setting at Caesarea Philippi where you had this God called Pan that was worshipped. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? By the way, I'm not going to go into this much. That's another sermon. But Son of Man is only used of Jesus by himself, of himself. Other people don't call him Son of Man in the Gospels. But he takes that appellation for himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? People have lots of opinions, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered in one of his better days, you are the Messiah or the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, bar Jonah, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. An important statement. But my father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ, that is the Messiah. Now there's so much in here that we could go into, but we're going to touch some areas. So first of all, the news media, as you'll notice, every year, although they're probably getting less and less as the country becomes more and more secular and and woke or whatever is going on. But every Christmas time, you know, they're interested in Jesus and Easter time, they're interested in Jesus. But they don't seem to be interested in the Jesus who actually existed. Uh, they talk a lot about Jesus, but they really don't say much about who he is. Uh, they're interested in a reimagined Jesus who is unsupported by authentic, historical, biblical, and extra biblical evidence. That is, we have a tremendous amount of information about Jesus. Not only do we have it in the New Testament, and not only do we have it prophesied in the Old Testament, but the period of the early church, the writings of Roman scholars at the time, authors, uh, all the way through the many centuries, there is so much evidence about Jesus. There is really no basis upon which to doubt that he existed, and yet some people say he's a figment of someone's imagination. He never really lived. He never really existed. And certainly he never raised from the dead. Even some well-known biblical scholars, and I use that, I mean, that's what they do, but they're not, they're not clearly conservative in their thinking. They're not Christian in their thinking, who deny that Jesus even came back from the dead. And some say he didn't even, wasn't crucified. Because that's just a story someone wrote down. Well, there's a lot of evidence. So forming the right view. Jesus then is the favorite of ancient heretics, and he is, early 2nd century particularly, world religions. It's amazing how many world religions identify with Jesus and claim him. There are some who argue he came, to, he came to the East and learned Buddhism. Really? No. <laughs> they have all sorts of things they come up with. Modern fiction novelists. Remember the thing, the Da Vinci Code that came out several years ago? I, I uh, had not read that until I saw, I'd fly, I flew a lot in those days, just 
seemed like all the time speaking somewhere. And and I saw people reading this book and I thought, well, I guess I ought to read that and find out what it's about. I was also more interested because my background neighbor was a half-brother to Dan Brown who wrote that. And we talked about that. And I read the book and every page was full with inaccuracies and misunderstandings. Uh, he, it really was a true fiction of every sort because hardly anything he said was accurate. And so Hollywood and television films have done him new age teachers, popular religion, and I call over the edge liberal scholars. He's by far the most, uh, the most modern popular individual and possibly distorted figure of history. So what we find then the most important question ever asked. So we're gonna deal with this different ways. First of all, we're gonna deal with the most important question ever asked and then the most important answer ever given. We are in a pivotal place in history right now. With this passage, at this period of time in Israel, the most important thing that ever happened in humankind occurred. So it's important to know what is the most important thing. And it came with a question and it came with an answer. First of all, you'll notice it happened to people in general and then the apostles. How did people view Jesus in the ancient world? The people he lived with. And I pointed out here, his hometown of Nazareth. Read it. How did they view Jesus? The son of a carpenter, they say. That's about it. They don't really have a lot of knowledge of Jesus. He grew up as a young boy. We know some things here and there about him, like at the temple but not a lot of information. Uh, but we do know that they knew who Jesus was and they were really taken back when one day in the, in the synagogue, he had the audacity of dealing with a passage in Isaiah 60 in which he said, this day, this passage, this particular statement, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And they knew what he was saying. That's why they took him out to the hillside. I could take you to where it was. <laughs> out to the hillside, not too far from where the synagogue was. And they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Because he did not measure up to their perspective. So the hometown of Nazareth uh, was, a, uh, was a problem. Remember that old statement that a prophet is not without honor except in his own, you know, around his own people, his own area. He, Jesus travels down to the Galilee and people heard him gladly, it says, the common people. Not the Pharisees, but the common people heard him gladly. People in his hometown, people that knew him, they were sort of taken back by him. They think, you're crazy. So different perspective. The people heard him gladly. So... Who do people say that I am is a statement that he asked his disciples. Well, listen, you guys have been traveling with me for a while. So who do you think I am? Well, we can go back in just a moment to John the Baptist because even John couldn't figure it out. Here comes this guy on the scene, a human being, that starts talking about God as his own father. What an odd idea. Really? I'm not talking about, oh, you know, God is our spiritual father. He took more of a, uh, a stronger view than that. I've been with the father for all time. I've learned from the father. And he calls him my father. So he is not well received in certain circles. 
John the baptizer was a popular prophet and baptizer, and a lot of people thought that Jesus, that these apostles talked to, thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. I always thought, that's a weird idea. He lost his head across the Sea of the Dead Sea. And at Machaerus with Herod Philip, Antipas, I mean. And so he lost, how could it be John the Baptist? This guy's gone. And then it said, Elijah. Now, why would they think that Jesus is Elijah? He's a worker of miracles. Jeremiah. And some people say, well, they thought it was Jeremiah because Jer Jeremiah was sort of a the weeping prophet. Jesus wept a lot. No, they missed the passage. You read Jeremiah chapter 7, and you'll understand why they thought he was Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah came in and told the people, you're, you're claiming the temple and you're not worshiping the true God. In other words, you say, the temple, the temple, the temple, God will never let us be destroyed because we got a temple. And Jesus said, you know what? This is all going to be gone someday. <laughs> they, had, they had a tough time with that. They, they thought the temple was really important. And all of a sudden, here's this guy who says, well, the temple is, is something that's not going to be here forever. And they didn't like that. So they, Jeremiah was a prophet of judgment, as was Jesus. Then they said, well, if it's not him, one of the prophets. Well, remember, Jesus said that basically from the time of the end of the second temple period, for about 400 years, there was no prophet in Israel, and John became the first one, new one. Remember? He said, John is the one that God has brought forward. And so you have a, an idea that, well, maybe one of the prophets here. But why would you think all of these people are gone? You see this? Do you see the problem? When I read this, I thought, something's wrong. Because the one they identified Jesus as being are all people that are no longer around. <laughs> Elijah went up in a fiery chariot. Jeremiah died like, you know, everybody else does. Uh, you know, John, John the Baptist lost his head. One of the prophets, who would they be? How did they come up with this? Well, they did believe in the resurrection, which is probably the reason why. He was doing certain things that were, mag that were magnificent and special, miraculous things. And they may have thought, well, maybe he has come back from the dead. Because your average Jewish person in the days of the first century, not the Sadducees now. Sadducees denied angels, afterlife, resurrection, everything. They were really on the far left. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, so maybe they thought, hey, maybe he came back from the dead. But then Jesus put the test, you know, to them. Because you have all these people that have all these views of Jesus, and I'm not going to take the time to go into all of these, but all these different groups had views of Jesus that were just like the people wrong-headed. May I suggest to you that a lot of people today, all they know about Jesus is sort of what they hear in the news, or they know about a season, or they identify him with Santa Claus, or something. They, they have a tangential kind of knowledge, very elementary and, and really not well-developed view of Jesus. That's also true in the church. Sometimes I've thought about it. If, if you lined everybody up down the way on the church and started asking questions, basic questions about the Bible, 
and about Bible doctrine. How much would we know? How many of us would pass? <coughs> or maybe some of us would pass with sterling grades on that one. Others would say, mm, I wasn't there that Sunday. <laughs> See, we have been called to be people of the word. May I say that? We've been called to be people of the word. If we are not knowledgeable of the word, who do we expect to be that way? Well, the pastor, he knows. That's not the biblical teaching. <laughs> Remember Timothy? Paul said, uh, he said, you know, you have known the scriptures from your childhood. And it wasn't because they had Bible storybooks in those days. Now, his father was a Greek, not a Christian. His mother, however, was a Christian, and no doubt his mother had been a faithful teacher of Scripture. Not just little stories, but had known the Scriptures very well. Every Jewish boy was expected to memorize large portions of Scripture. They had to be able to say it and recite it. And that's true today, by the way. I wonder how much of that is true with us. Think about that a little bit. That's not what the sermon's about directly. But the fact is, if we're ignorant of something in the Bible, we have a need to rectify it by getting into the scriptures and becoming one with it, to know it, to understand it, to read it. So his family obviously viewed him in different ways. Remember his two brothers who later on wrote biblical books. One was called Jude, the other was called James. And they ridiculed their brother mocking him. What are you going to go do now? You're going to do something special down at the, at the uh, at Jerusalem because the feast is there and what are you going to do? They mocked him. And what he did, he went separate from them because he had a job to do. He didn't pay any attention to them. His relative John, remember what John said when he was in prison? He said, send a message to Jesus Ask him if he's the right one, if he's the Messiah, or should we look for somebody else? That's John, who had been preaching about him under a time of despair. And I can understand being in a prison and being very discouraged, and a person's about to take your head off, and you say, are you really the right one? Have I, been, have I actually been proclaiming the right person or not? Well, sometimes discouragement comes in. But what's it all about? The importance of Jesus and liking him rather than, as some people do, liking him but not knowing him. Who do the disciples say he is? So there's two things that we find in the text. So let's look at it. This is where we are. Peter was not a scholar in the scriptures. But in time, fishermen became knowledgeable about the text. Why? Because they had a teacher. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Some very practical questions that we're going to deal with. But first of all, we must know, in fact, who is this person that we are going to be a disciple of? Simon Peter put his foot in his mouth so often. If you read the biblical text, you know what I'm saying. This guy was always jumping the gun and making statements. And when he was, Jesus was out on the water, remember? He's a guy jumped right out on the water. He got so excited, and then he started going down in the water. And he says, help me. <laughs> but somebody needed to help him also sometimes when he opened his mouth. 
Have you ever known anybody like that? No. That no, you haven't never known. And of course, you've never done it yourself. <coughs> Open your mouth before your mind is in, is is an operation. Peter did that all the time, but this day I say he had one of his better days. <coughs> Because it says, you are the Christ. Now, the word Christ is a Greek word. I'm giving you the Greek. I don't expect you to read it. But the fact is, Christos is the word in Greek. That's how it's pronounced, Christos, from when we get the word Christ. But it's important to understand the word Christos in Greek means the same thing that Messiah does in Hebrew. It means one who is the anointed one, the anointed one. Matter of fact, in that sense, David was a Messiah. See, it means to be anointed. And so Jesus was the anointed one of God. So he says, you are the Messiah. Now, let's stop there because there's a whole lot of teaching on the Old Testament about the Messiah who's coming. There's so many passages. Some, the very first prophecy of the scripture never mentions the word Messiah, but sets the stage for the event. Because he says, you know, that the snake in the garden, who was, who was basically Satan behind this snake, he said, he's going to bite your heel. Who? One of your offspring. He's going to bite his heel, but he will crush his, the serpent's head. And that's what happened. That was a prophecy of the cross. Because the one who is from the woman actually will be bitten, but not damaged, because he will conquer Satan by the crushing of the head. That's the first prophecy we have in the whole Bible. But as you start reading through the Bible, you continue to see these things. They give evidence there's somebody's coming, someone anointed by God who's going to deliver his people, someone who's going to set up God's kingdom, it keeps having that idea all the way through. Isaiah 7, 14 about the virgin birth. Questions of Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 about the Messiah who suffers. Who suffers. And people in the, in the days of Jesus had difficulty with the fact Messiah is suffering. He's supposed to be a king and rule. Well, they just got things mixed up a little bit. One has to perceive the other. He had to be the Messiah who suffered before he becomes the Messiah who's king. And they just got it mixed up in their reading. And so you have this statement that comes in, first of all, he is Messiah. And I want to grab hold of that in a minute. But then the second thing is, he's son of God. Now, if you or I were to go in the midst of a group of people and say, by the way, I'm the son of God. I think people would look at you strange, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think so? Uh, that's true certainly in the days of the Jews because I know we talk today, well, we're sons and daughters of God. That's not what they're talking about here. They're not talking about the fact that we've been born from above and we then share as brothers of Christ in some way. This stuff, we are not the eternal sons of God. Jesus is. Jesus is God of very God, the creeds say, the rightly so. He is God of very God. Whatever it means to be God, he is. At the same time, he was whatever it meant to be man, simultaneously. Because there is a person who has two natures simultaneously. And this was a big part of the arguments in the ancient church. In what sense does it mean that? But I think we're correct in the fact he is truly 
As a son of God, he is like God as son. It's like you would, you have the same attributes as your father. You're of that other person, so to speak. And so you have Peter saying, you're the son of the living God. When he's asked, whom do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So the fact is that we, we have this teaching of the church that we've got to grab hold of that becomes important to us. Because it's, there's a tendency, even among Christians, to not recognize that Jesus is everything that it means to be God. I had a, had a friend of mine who used to present this, a professor friend, and he would say, you have one what and three who's. You catch that? There's one what, but there are three who's. Because each of the who's is a person who shares all of the what that is God. So if you can sort of keep that in your head, it will help you. There's one what, that is there's one nature that three who's all share the totality. They don't separate and say, you take this third, I'll take that third, and so forth. All of what it means to be God resided in Jesus while he was on the earth. And this is one of the spectacular things I know when sometime I'm in Israel and I have a tour group and I, I'm at a place that has very close to probably what the uh, the actual birthplace of Christ would have been. I think it is a church of the nativity. I think that's where it occurred. But you lose some of the dimensions because you've got a big church there. If you go out to see the kind of places that people would have had for cattle and a place to be born and so forth. I thought about this. When Jesus was nursing with Mary, weak and lowly Jesus, at the time he was doing that, this person who was doing it was also controlling the entire universe. You gotta work that in your head a little bit. He's weak and he's all powerful. He doesn't know much. Matter of fact, it says he has to learn Torah. He has to learn scripture. He has to grow in wisdom and knowledge. The text says that. He had to learn just like you have to learn. But only as a man, not as God, he knows everything. So you have one person in two natures. So that whatever it is to be human, he is. Whatever it means to be divine, he is in one person. That's a spectacular concept. I don't know if, you know, I, of course I know I'm a professor of theology and maybe I'm supposed to do this, but I sometimes just sit back and think of these ideas and try to reach the, the as far as I can go in thinking through it. What does it mean to be eternal? What does it mean to be all-powerful? What does it mean to be all-knowing? What does it mean to be all these things that God is, that Jesus is, and is now? And I worship this divine being. When we say, you are the Son of God, when people fall down like Thomas and he falls at his feet, you're my Lord and my God. When you do that, you've got to realize he's, he's falling at the feet of a human being who's a human, but who is also God. And you have some false doctrines that you'll pick up sometime, and some of you probably hold them. And I say, I don't mean this bad because I know people of all sorts of, you know, and even schools that hold this. They get, I was reading something yesterday, and I thought, oh, off base. And the fact that some people say, well, in the incarnation, Jesus gave up all of his attributes. He ceased to have the divine attributes. If you give away all you are as God, you're no longer God. 
Or they say, well, he chose not to use the attributes. Read the Bible. It, it's amazing what it will teach you. He oftentimes, he said, so that you might know that I have power on earth to forgive sins, I'm just going to heal this guy. And you can't see me forgiving this guy that was put down from the roof. You can't see me doing, you know, anything. So you'll know that I really can't forgive sins while I'm on earth. He says, I'll just heal him and let him get up. And they were amazed at that. Why? Because he's both God and man. That is the one we worship. The one who died on the cross. Which is an amazing idea to me. Is it to you? That someone who is the all-powerful maker of the universe and human form would actually be willing to suffer and die on a cross. That is a unique experience for God. Because God's eternal. He's ineffable. You can't get close. You can't hurt him. There's nothing you can do. And yet there he is on a cross. And to me, I just stand back and I just think of it. It amazes me. To me, that's part of what worship is. We do all sorts of interesting things in worship sometimes. And I'm not criticizing our singing and so forth. But I think sometimes we go through these rote things of doing this. You know, we sing it and so forth. Have you ever just sat back and just thought? and got involved in worship as you contemplate what it means to do what Paul teaches over in Philippians chapter 2 who being in very nature God talking about Jesus the man who being in very nature God thought it not something to take advantage of which is a better translation of that not take advantage of that fact but emptied himself into the form of a human being and then even suffered. You know, I can understand maybe sometimes that we would be willing to do certain things like that because we're just only human. But the fact that God himself would choose to do something he was not required to do to take care of us makes me want to just worship and knock things off. <laughs> So the fact is, this is who we're talking about. Let's look at some of the passages. It says, we, we know this, and I'll talk something about this explanation of Peter in just a moment. That's not central to what I wanted to talk about. It says, concerning his son Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, who was born in the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. That is, that demonstrated his divinity. Paul in 9.5 of Romans. Theirs, that is the Jews, are the patriarchs, and from them, that is Jewish genealogy, is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Look at another statement of Paul. We know that an idol is nothing in all the world, so forth. There are many gods, you know, that all these ones claim to be gods. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we live, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things that came through whom we live. Look at Philippians 2. Your attitude should be this, as in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider that something to take advantage of. And last of all, and there are others, but this is the only one for me here. In the beginning was the Word. 
Does that sound familiar to you? Think about Genesis 1-1, the very first passage of the scriptures. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, Jesus was the word because the text goes on to say that all things were made through him. Now, if you made everything, then you're God. If you're eternal, you're God. And so that's who we worship here. And yet he was made flesh among us. So how should we deal with this? I think we need to contemplate more. I, one of these days I'll preach a sermon here I want to preach on Psalm 113. Because when I hear people talk about praising God, I think, and, I, and, and, and please understand, I didn't understand this a long time in my life. But I hear people talking about praising God, and I'm thinking, wouldn't it be nice if they actually did? <clears throat> because, and I'm not going to get into this right now, but you can actually, and I grew up in a Pentecostal church where we praise God constantly. And yet I looked at that and I thought, you can say praise God from now to the end of eternity and you will never have done it yet. Do you realize that? Well, praise God, praise God, praise God. And I say, do it. <laughs> Quit talking about it. Do it. Because you can't say the words and accomplish the task. It's an imperative verb to do something and you're telling people do it. So what is praising God? This whole concept of worship we have to first of all get into our heads who is this person that was Jesus and if you read the gospels you find out that he's both Lord and God and also a human being and that's the one we worship so we should worship him we should embrace his salvation he's the savior God in the flesh who actually died for us that's such a difficult concept for me to work through. Because I think about how other people throughout the world and their views of God are so different from a biblical view of God and a biblical view of Christ. Uh, the fact that he would take upon himself our sins is, is, is really beyond our comprehension why he would do it. Uh, I certainly don't deserve it. All those who think they deserve to be saved, please raise their hand. See, I'm not going to get any hands up. But sometimes we think about ourselves, well, obviously I'm not a bad guy. No, you're, you're terrible. As am I. We're all in trespasses and sin. Amen. Apart from God himself saying, you know, I created these people and they fail. And rather than just jettisoning them out of the universe... Because he could just think a thought and they would be gone. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually go down and deliver them from their sins. And I'm going to do something spectacular. Now, this is something. I want, there's a passage over in Genesis where you have Abraham who goes up to a mount called Mount Moriah, where eventually the temple stood in Jerusalem. But he went on Mount Moriah and he was told by God... Yahweh, he was told to go up there and sacrifice his son. You familiar with that? Now, Yahweh had just told him that it's through this man Isaac, this boy Isaac, growing into a man, that I will fulfill my promises that I gave you that are unconditional, that are going to happen. But then he said, go up and sacrifice him. That's why the writer of Hebrews, when he comes to this, he says, 
Abraham believed in the resurrection. Now, why would the writer of Hebrews say that? The book in the Old Testament doesn't say that. But it does say that he went to, uh, he had a servant with him. He says, my son and I will go up to worship God and we will come back to you. And yet he's going to put his knife up and, and just kill. And I thought, how does that all fit? And he raises a knife and gets ready to do what he said he would do to demonstrate his 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 uh, allegiance to God. And God stops it. And then he says something special. And in Hebrew, is, you see it one way. You don't see it in English because we don't have the, the English don't explain what the words mean sometimes. But the Hebrew word yada means to know something by experience. It's not just know something intellectually, but it's know something by experience. And Yahweh said to Abram, he says, now I know that you actually are willing to follow me. Well, he knew in eternity, didn't he? He knew in eternity everything that's ever going to happen. So why did he just get this information? Because it's not no intellectually. He says, now I know by my own experience with you that you're faithful. He knew he would do it in his mind, God did, but he had to know it by experience. Even God can't experience what he doesn't experience. Okay? And so that's the point of the cross. God had to actually experience what it means to be judged for sins. And that's what occurs with what we see in the cross. What I'm trying to do today, because I'm going to talk about this more next week when we go into discipleship, and I hope you'll read the rest of Matthew chapter 16, because we have teaching that we need to know about a lot of things, but we certainly need to have a correct understanding of the whole issue of what Peter blasted out but got correct. You are the Messiah. How many believe Jesus is still the Messiah? I do. And I think the promises made will eventually be fulfilled as God's Messiah reigning on the throne of David. Not now, but I'm waiting for it. He's Messiah, but he's also son of God. And he deserves all the praise and honor and glory for all ages by his people. And I would encourage you to do this because this is something that's helped me. And then I would actually take the time to just by yourself think through these things and begin to be just totally taken with awe that these things are true. We use the word to sing the song, but I'm saying in our time of thinking to really contemplate what it means for God to enter humanity, what it means for Jesus to actually be God at the same time that he's human. And all of these things, because this is part of what real worship is, is contemplating and thinking and then telling others what we learn from Scripture about who Jesus is. So next week, though, we're going to talk about how should our knowledge of Jesus make a difference in how we live. And I'm going to talk about the second half of Matthew 16, which is the question of being a disciple and what that means.